The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Thank you, musicians, for those wonderful words and such a wonderful setup to what we're studying today. I'm so thankful for our music ministry and our AV ministry and all those who serve here to make our worship possible. Worship is so important, and that's what we're going to be looking at today in God's Word. And I love those words that we just sang in worship, how our unchangeable God is God alone, and He is on His throne. Amen? We need that. We need to know that He doesn't need us, that He doesn't depend on us. And I also love that song, The Law of God is Good. It was a hymn written in the 1860s, and it reminds us that we're not good. We always need Jesus. We always need to go to Jesus. And last week, we saw how Jesus loved a proud young man, and he used the law, he used the Ten Commandments in particular to show him that he wasn't good. And last week, we introduced the law and the gospel, and we saw the law convicts sinners, it warns the proud, but in believers, we also saw in Psalm 119, the law of God can revive hearts and homes, and there's a sense, in some sense of the law, Paul says we are not under it. We can think of law's curse, as he says in Galatians, or his, its condemnation in the book of Romans. It, we're not under the law as a code to save. It has no power to justify, as we sang and. We're not talking about circumcision or the ceremonies that Jesus fulfills that we're not under, but there is another sense that Romans 7.12 says this, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then at the end of Romans 7, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God. So we are to serve the law of God through Jesus with gratitude. Thanks be to God. And the law is good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9:21 that he's not under the law like the Jews, like he was before, but he clarifies this. He's quote, not outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Or other translations say, not above the law, not without the law. We're not free from God's law. We're not to be lawless. But don't think kosher dietary laws. Think of Christ's law. The New King James of that verse says, we are under law toward Christ. And so as we look at God's law again, the Ten Commandments, think of them as done toward Christ. And we're going to be looking at his law as it's interpreted by Christ, this side of the cross but I think it's also helpful to think of the threefold use of the law that came out of the Reformation. And there's a, there's a use that we saw last week in James one twenty five, where he says, Blessed is the one who looks intently at the law and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This is the one who will be blessed in what he does. And, and he says right before that, it's like, a, like looking in a mirror. Like one who looks intently at a, at a mirror and he sees something that's wrong, but then he just goes away and does nothing about it. So this is the first use of the law. It shows us, 
it reflects to us God's character, but it also, as we look at that mirror, it shows us what's wrong with us. It shows us what's off, but the law itself doesn't fix us. I know many of you this morning, you got up, you went to the bathroom, you looked in your mirror on the wall, and you're you know, kind of surveying the, the damage, you're looking to, to see what, what are some things that I, that I need to make right before I come into God's presence. But the, the mirror itself was not something any of you took off the wall and then used to, to try to either pat down your hair or if you had something between your teeth. You're not using the mirror as a, as a comb or as floss. The, the mirror itself is showing you what's wrong, but, but, it, but the, the, the law itself doesn't save. It doesn't change. What we sang earlier was the law shows us the way and it imparts the knowledge of our sinful hearts so that we may see our lost estate and seek deliverance ere too late. Paul says in Galatians that the law or the Decalogue is a guardian. It is a tutor that is meant to lead us to Christ. We need his help, actually, to to change us and to save us. But That's the first use of the law. And then the second use of the law, it restrains greater sin. The the law is good in the sense of of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8. We know... That the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then listen, listen to what he says here. See if this sounds familiar. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, and the word is literally man-stealers, liars, perjurers. What he just did there is he did commandments 5 through 9 in order about parents and about not murdering and about not being immoral and about not stealing and about not bearing false Witness. He went through number five through nine in order, and then he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So that would be all the rest as well. So Paul says the law is good, and then he goes through the second table of the Ten Commandments as he's writing to Christians. And so this is part of where that song came from. The law of God is good and wise. It sets his will before our eyes. But when men, the offered help disdain and willfully in sin remain when they refuse God's help and they just stay stubbornly in their sin the the law in their ear is to resound and to keep their wickedness in bound we see this on a human level even with law enforcement as as we think of law the, the fact that there is law enforcement out there restrains evil and it's a, a godly role of of government and we need to pray for those even in our church who who do that But as we think about God's law, there's a third use, and that is to teach believers what pleases God or how to live pleasing to God. It shows us God's heart, God's moral standards, and I think Jesus in Matthew 5 is is doing that. He's teaching believers in him. He's calling his disciples to them, and he's teaching the law to them and what pleases God but it's, it's often different than the way the Jews had interpreted it. So we need to look at how Jesus teaches it. But I think it's good to keep those three uses of the law in mind as we study these Ten Commandments 
together, and I love that line, to those who help in Christ have found and would in works of love abound. The law shows what deeds are his delight and should be done as good and right. That also comes from what Paul says in Romans 7.22. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Or one translation says, I joyfully concur with the law. And what Paul is doing is he's echoing Psalm 119. It says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold or silver pieces. I think that's good for us in gold country to, to remember there's something far better than what people came to this country for in the 1840s and, and following the gold, the riches. We have far greater riches in the law of God. And this is good for our suffering too. Verse 92, Psalm 119. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction And I want us to pray as we come to God's word now that this series would help us to say with Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Let's let's pray for his help as we come to his law. Our Father, we pray with Psalm 119 that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things out of your law Lord, many of us maybe need to be convinced that there are wonderful things there. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty and the goodness and the love behind your law for your people. And as Psalm 119 also prays, put false ways far from us, Lord. Help us to balance and understand these things rightly and anything false that you would keep that from us. And then it says there, graciously teach us your law. Lord, we need your grace in this as well. And then as the psalm also prays, give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with your whole heart. We pray these things in and through Christ for his sake. Amen. Well, dearly beloved, we've come together here in the presence of God. What does that remind you of, that opening statement there? A wedding, right? Those are the Traditional words when you begin a wedding, and there's covenant language in that historic wording for a covenant ceremony. And part of the the wording, even in the beginning paragraph there, is you're asking these two people, are they going to come forsaking all others and be faithful? And so I want us to think about that as we turn to Exodus 20, where we see a covenant ceremony. And this is for God's dearly beloved This is for those who have come together in God's presence. And Exodus 19 calls these people God's treasured possession, his special people that he loves and and cherishes. Some of the language that Moses will, will use is they're the apple of his eye. And Jeremiah says in the wilderness that Israel was the Lord's bride. Israel in the wilderness was the Lord's bride and he was their covenant husband. And in Exodus 19, the witnesses say, I will, as they hear these covenant commitments. Even as you hear people say membership covenants here or or marriage covenants as well. And there's an I will and, and witnesses say that as well. And Israel here, as the congregation of God, are vowing to be faithful from this day forward. In fact, they, they say words like that. And, and what we're going to see in this first command is God is jealous for his own. God will allow no other before him. He will allow no other alongside him or in addition 
to him or before his eyes. There can be no one or no thing that we love and honor and cherish like him. Just imagine if a a wife brings another man before her husband and, and says, I, I just want you to know I've, I've got another. And she brings him before him and says, I, I've got another love, but I'm still going to love you alongside him. I just, I just love him too. No way. Uh, that covenant commitment is, is an exclusive relationship forsaking all others. This is, when we get to Exodus 20, verse 3, if you'll look at it, this is what our covenant God says in relationship to his people you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's say that out loud together. You shall have no other gods before me. A detailed study on verse 3 says, The Hebrew formula do not have means to keep or refrain from having a relationship with. It's a formulaic expression for the unique covenant relationship between God and Israel. It's the, and as the terminology for marriage became the classical terminology for Israel's covenant relationship with God, what this is saying is the most intimate of human relationships becomes the analogy for God's intimate relationship with his people. This command is saying there can be no third parties. There can be no relationship of any kind, even coming close to that level with any other gods and you shall have no other means don't let any others have you don't let any love of yours be above god and the main point of this is there is only one true god and he must be number one in heart soul and mind this is the first of the ten commandments and as we saw last time and if you weren't here I encourage you to listen to get some of that Get that running start we got last week. This is God's gracious, loving law for his covenant people. And we're going to look at it today in the context of Old Covenant Israel, which we're not under that covenant. We need to also look at Christ's words and in culture today. But our God, as we sang earlier, is unchangeable, and there's unchangeable truths about him to learn from all of his commands. But as we think about what the New Testament says for us in the New Covenant, we are also called in the beloved. We are called dearly loved in Ephesians. As Paul says, as Christ loved the church and he nourishes and and cherishes her. And that's the model of, of marital love. But no one can put asunder a believer's union with Christ. Death will not part his love for us. That's what a marriage covenant pictures and that's what the Mosaic covenant also pictures. And Paul would write later about things Moses wrote, how they they were actually a mystery pointing forward to Christ and his church. But let's look at the context for the Israelites, the commentary by Christ, and then our culture in our life. First, the immediate context of the verse right before it. Keep your Bible open and look look down at verse 2 where it says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. He's, He's talking to people who... He's in a covenant relationship with, again, just to be clear, this isn't something you do to then earn this relationship. God has already done all the work in this relationship up to this point, but now he's telling them what they should do in response to his love. 
Even as Jesus said, if you love me, you will do my commandments. But the implication of this language, I am the Lord your God, is I'm yours. And the implication also is I brought you out to be mine. Verse 2 says, he redeemed them out of Egypt. And in, in chapter 19, we saw how it also says he lovingly carried them as his. It was, it was like an eagle with its tender little ones. That was how he brought his people out. Listen to Isaiah 43. O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I know this verse has been precious to a family in this church who's gone through difficulty recently. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. That's the exact same thing he says at the start of his Exodus 20, that's what all that means. And he goes on, I give Egypt as your ransom. In other words, I made them pay, not you. You you didn't have to pay. I made them pay to ransom you and to bring you out. Why did he do that? He says this, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. This is a law of love. And this is the one who says, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the loving Lord who says this. And Isaiah 43, 10 goes on to apply that first commandment. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. There is no true God that has ever been formed He says, I am the Lord. He says it again. And besides me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 45, 22, he says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. These are loving words presented to Israel, but even in the Old Testament, these words, I am the, the Lord, your God, there's no one before me. Turn to me, take me as your God. There's no other way to be saved but through me. And we know that in the New Testament. There's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved but the name of Jesus. Jesus is God. But all of this refutes any other God like Allah, for example. It it rules out polytheism as well. Multiple gods like Mormonism or Buddhism or, or many false religions that have many gods. And it rebukes Jehovah's Witnesses who say that Jesus is a God in John 1 verse 1. Besides Jehovah, there can be no God, he says. And besides me, there is no Savior. And and the New Testament says repeatedly, Jesus is the Savior. So he is, if there's no Savior besides Jehovah, Jesus is Jehovah or Yahweh, as the Jews probably pronounce it. Jesus says, I am. And he is the Lord your God in the New Testament. Moses used that phrase. From verse 2, the Lord your God at another time, when they were on the edge of the promised land, to recall this, here's what he wrote in Deuteronomy 4, all of which the Lord your God, there's that phrase again, the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes, that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him, and because he loved 
you, Israel, he says, and brought you out of Egypt. Lay it to your heart. This is something that needs to be on your heart. There is no other. The Lord is God. This isn't just about there not being other gods. It's about this needs to be on your heart, that he is supreme. Another verse in Isaiah forty-eight seventeen. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, I am the Lord your God. There's that phrase, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. That's who says the same thing in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God, and he's about to teach what's best. He's going to direct you in the way that you should go. This is for our good. This is for what's best. This is the law of love. Psalm 81, verse 10, just one more. We actually read this in our scripture reading earlier, or our call to worship. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's another echo of Exodus 20. Here's how the psalm applies it. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But God is saying he alone is sufficient. He can satisfy us. He is the Lord your God. We need to look to him and him alone for ultimate satisfaction before the Ten Commandments, there were ten plagues, if you remember the story. So just to review, those of you who haven't been here, I think most, many of you know the story, most of you. But as they came out of Egypt, God didn't just bring them out. He could have done that with one miracle, but he does ten plagues, and all ten of them are going after false gods that Egypt worshipped to show their gods of creation and every aspect of it were not true gods at all, that God alone has power over that. So part of what he's doing, even before the Ten Commandments, he does these ten plagues on those gods of Egypt, the false gods of Egypt. But what about the context of the verses right after Exodus 20, verse 3? I think This is the foundation in verse 3. Verses 4 through 6 give more explanation, and we'll look at these next week. But there are two commandments. We've got the foundation of of worship and who God is, but then there there needs to be more explanation. So that's the second command. The second commandment is going to say that God is jealous of idols. But he starts in verse 3 saying that God will have no rival. The second commandment is going to forbid more specifically a graven statue, but I think the first command is forbidding any greater substitute. It doesn't need to be an object. It's, it's what's going on in our heart. I think it starts with the heart, and I think God begins in these ten commandments, or they're called the ten words, the same way his word begins in the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, What? God. We, we always need to start with God, and that's how God starts his word. In the beginning, God. In the beginning of the Ten Commandments, it's, it's God. But think about creation. There was nothing before God created. And he's saying here, you shall have no other gods before me. There's nothing created that is to come before the creator in our appreciation, in our affection, in our allegiance. Nothing that he's created, even the good things, not just bad things, the good things he's created, nothing is to, and no one is to come before him in our affection, our allegiance, our appreciation. Nothing should be higher. And in verse 4, we'll look next week, how it forbids images in the likeness of creation, heaven, earth, waters. It uses those terms that are right out of Genesis 1. God created and talks about heavens, the earth, the waters. 
all of that is Genesis 1 terms. You're not to create anything to worship that is from creation. And creation also, so that's the second command, creation shows us how majestic is his name in all the earth. And the third command is going to say, so we need to honor his name in all the earth. Why is Israel to rest after a week of work? The fourth command is going to say, because of creation week, God did his work in six days and then ceased on the seventh. We're not God, but even God ceased and rested from his week, so we need to not think that we don't need that. What about the fifth command? Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply kids and and have authority. That's the basis for the fifth command. And then the next command, not to murder, is also rooted in Genesis 1 because God there creates man and woman in his image. That's why it's different to kill a human being than to kill a a plant or an animal for, for lawful purposes. And the next command, you shall not commit adultery, is also a violation of what God did in creation with Adam and Eve on the sixth day. It says the two shall become one flesh in a covenant union. Or the, That's the seventh command. The eighth command, not to take what's not yours. That's also rooted in Genesis 1 and 2, remember on that sixth day, God told Adam there was something that was not his to take. And that was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then number 9 and number 10 of the commandments also were in the garden. There was false witness about God's character coming from Satan. And then Eve is coveting. And then Adam covets, which is the tenth commandment. And so all ten of those are connected to creation. And what the New Testament says is since creation, men suppress what they know of God. They suppress the truth, but they still have this moral law on their conscience. Romans 1 and 2 talks about this. And there will be a new creation. That's also part of the big picture of the Bible where things are going to be restored to that original design. But the first command shows that we need that in our heart first. We need new hearts. We need God to renew our hearts. You shall have no other gods before me. That starts in the heart. But now let's go to number two. Let's go to Mark 12. From the context of Israelites to the commentary by Christ. The Ten Commandments point back to creation. They also point forward to Christ for sinners. And so as you get the force of that command and as you read the story of Israel, you realize they, they couldn't get past this first command. I mean, you'll, you'll see that in the story, but the reality is we can't either. They would fail in the wilderness, and, and so would we in this, in this command of him not being supreme in our heart, soul, and mind. They would have other gods in the wilderness, but Jesus would come to the wilderness in God became flesh in Christ, and he comes to the wilderness, and he's being tested in the wilderness. The, the devil, again, is coming and testing. And you could see, in some sense, the, the test that he brings to Jesus is going after this first 
commandment in, in some respects because Jesus says back to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. He's using that language right out of Exodus 20. And him only you shall serve. That's from another part of the law, but it's really paraphrasing and applying that first commandment. God and God alone is to be worshipped. Not you, and I'm not going to put my appetites above God's will for me. I'm not going to put my pride above, you know, you know, jump off this building and show everyone who you are. That would be also putting pride forward. Jesus resists the devil and quotes to him that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus did not fail the test. Jesus fulfilled this command in all of them for sinners. But look at when... We come to Mark 12, 28. <clears throat> There's a discussion with one of the scribes, Mark 12, 28, came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, that Jesus had answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God there's that phrase, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's, that's from another part of the law, but it's summing up the, the first commandment, we could say. And then the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside, besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's kind of, it's kind of amazing, this this guy is even understanding, and even the way he's paraphrasing it back, yes, there's none right, none other besides him, and he adds understanding, and then he, he, he talks about that this law here is more than all of the sacrificial law and system, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he sees this man answering wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Matthew's gospel adds that he said the whole law depends on those two commands. And we talked last week how those really sum up the two tables or the tablets if we divide the, the Ten Commandments, the, the first part starting with loving the Lord and then really all of the commands towards another being an expression of loving your neighbor. Some of the translations say that he asked him about what is the first commandment. And it starts with God is one and then love him as number one with all that you are. Which is another way to say, have nothing else before him. No other gods, the one true God must be number one. In heart, soul, mind, strength, understanding, all that we are. Jesus quotes the law and then he gives commentary on how the law begins God must have first place in everything. And the scribe, to some degree, got it, even though he wasn't yet saved. There is no other besides him. And so the first, foremost commandment is loving. 
that way. Now turn to Matthew 10, if you would. Nothing before the one true God depends on having no other love before him as number one. But just think about the force of that. Do you love God with all you are all of the time? I mean, if that's really what sums it up, how are you doing in loving God with all your heart, all the time? Well, Jesus is going to add something to that, even talk about what that love looks like in relation to other loves. Matthew 10, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me. Now notice, you might expect him to say more than God, but now he's taking that whole concept and saying more than me. If you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus is, is talking like what he's already talked about in, in the law of how it relates to God. We're not to love anyone or anything more than God. Jesus is now applying that to himself as God. And what he's saying is there to, to follow me, Jesus must be the number one reality in your life far above all human relationships. That takes self-denying. That takes cross-taking. That takes forsaking all others. Like Exodus 20, verse 3, putting no other before Jesus. So he, he shows us practically what that looks like. If you love anyone or anything more than me, you're not worthy of me. Here's how Colossians 1, 17 and 18 says it. In fact, let's read it there on the screen. Colossians 1, 17 and 18 before all things, to have first place in everything. The first part of the verse says this is Jesus. He is before all things, and he is to have first place in everything. I want to show you guys a picture of our dear sister Mavis, who just went to be with the Lord. Her service was this month. And I asked her husband, Mike, if I could borrow her Bible as I was preparing for the remarks I would give. And I opened her Bible. And if you know Mavis, she's one of the sweetest ladies here. I opened her Bible, and she, she had a picture of our family on the front page as I opened it. And, and then some things she was praying for was just, just ministered so much to my soul to know she was praying for us uh, but but here's the part that really stood out to me because I always saw her having that s smile and, and joy on her face. In fact, I said at her service, she always had something kind to say after the worship service. And I said, that's not true of everyone who comes out of, out of church, but that was always true of her. But here's what, let me zoom in. If you can read that. It says, rejoice because the joy of the Lord is my strength. Abide in Jesus' love. And then it's J-O-Y. Jesus first. That's what Colossians is talking about. Jesus having the first place. Oh, others. There's that second commandment. We do need to love others. And then why you last. What a, I, I want to share that with you because that's, that's, a, that's a sermon better than I can write in her life. For those who knew her life, she, she lived that. But we need to... Continue that 
rejoicing, having the joy of the Lord as our strength. And, and for people at our service, when our time comes, for them to be able to say about us like they said about her, she, she never said an unkind word. Even her family says when we would start speaking unkindly, she would not let us do that. She would always uh, seek to be loving to others, but it started with Jesus first. And I love that. Jesus first, others second, you last that's really summing up that we need to love Jesus above all. He needs to have the first place. There's none other like him or that can be before him. He needs to be first place. And one way to look at it is not first place in terms of a, a ranking or you just like move on. You've got a little checkbox. You know, you spend time with Jesus and then you move on. No, it's, it's, it's not like Jesus is first, then our spouse and our kids and our work and all of that, first place in everything, you could also take that as Jesus needs to be number one in our family. Jesus needs to be number one in our work. He needs to be number one in everything. First place in everything. We'll go to chapter 6, if you would. But I think also what we're going to sing here at the end, Be Thou My Vision, one of the lines says, Thou and Thou only be first in my heart. And then it says, My treasure Thou art. As you sing that, if you realize you fall short of that, as you sing that, pray, God, help this to be true. Be first in my heart. Because sometimes you're not. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first. There's that, that language of seek this first, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? Verse 31 talks about the needs and things of this world, but in everything of life. We're to seek first his kingdom, to seek him as first place. Keep the king, number one. Look at verse 21, Matthew six twenty-one. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Verse 24, you cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. And so that takes us to to number three, our culture and our life. And I think Jesus helps give us a framework of how this applies that we need to be seeking God first, nothing before him. And, and we need to not be seeking first our worries. If, if those are the first things that, that come to mind, our worries and our concerns, we need God's help to, to put him first, to let him dominate and not all our, our concerns. And what Jesus does, he actually places serving God on the same level with those who serve wealth or money. Or, or, or mammon, American money says on it, in God we trust. But for many, money is the God they trust. The, the dollar is what they look to. And everything hinges on that. Job said this 4,000 years ago, If I have put my trust in gold or said you are my security, it would be sins to be judged. If, if he had put his security and trust instead of God as his security and trust, that would have been a sin he recognized. That was long before the law was given, but Job got it. A, a God can be wealth, it can be work, it can be 
wine, it can be worry, if that consumes you, if that controls you. Your God is whatever you serve that masters you, and you can't serve two of them. It's what you live for. Jesus uses the language of what you're devoted to, what you love, what you treasure. That's where your heart is. So think of affections, think of addictions, even think of the answer to the question, what do you seek first and foremost? Even the first thing where your mind goes is the first thing that you can when you've got time. If it's not his kingdom, if he's not king above all, that's what he's talking about here. So think about this. What is it that you put before God? Or what are things that you put in your life that even take you away from God? That we need to think about and be careful with and how we invest our time in those, whether it's screens that are keeping you away from time with God or His Word or what He calls you to or social media or sports or self just is a, a big category there. It can take the place of God so easily. What do you most prize? What do you prioritize? Family can be in the place that God should only have and and can take us away from what God would call us to. Food can be in that place. It can be a God. Here's what Paul said of some. Their God is their belly with minds set on earthly things. This is Philippians 3, 19. And he says in Romans 16, 18, such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. Those are the desires, the cravings of earthly things. Another translation says they think only about this life here on earth and serving their own personal interests. What does it look like to obey the first commandment? I think the flip side of all that is Psalm 73, verse 25. There is nothing on earth I desire besides you or before you. To be able to say with the psalmist, I desire you more than anything else. Well, even if we have moments where we're like that, there's so many things that can come into our mind that can take us away from even just that first priority of that first commandment. When we're living for earthly things, when we're just gratifying fleshly appetites, or when we have desires for anything besides or before God, a God is what defines you, what you let define you and what you let drive you above all, what dominates your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Let me give you one other passage. Habakkuk one eleven talks about those who are deeply guilty for their own strength is their God. And it says they will worship their nets. That's, that's their work. And, and they will claim these nets are the gods who have made us rich. Maybe you don't ever have nets that you, you use, but the point there is we can easily, and maybe even as Americans, there's unique temptations for us to, to make the a God of what we do and, and rely on our strength and take credit for things that we didn't do or think that they made us rich rather than God. Men can worship, any of us can worship what we do and what we have. 
We can praise it. We can sacrifice greatly for it. That's what worship was. Things you praise, you'll sacrifice anything for it. All of that goes against this command. What Jesus called the first command, to love the Lord your God. He is one. He needs to be number one in all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not trust in anything else, strength or whatever. When, when, you, when you really understand this, we are all guilty of not keeping the one true God as number one. Too often, self can become number one. Even here on the Lord's Day as we go from here, we need to watch that temptation. The wife of C.S. Lewis said, God's put before God today can be sex, the state, science, and society. I think she said that more than 50 years ago, but that's so true. Sex outside of marriage in our culture, there are so many gods and goddesses that people will bring offerings to and pay great amounts for at great costs. The state wants the church to bow to it and its demands. I just watched a, a movie this past weekend called The Essential Church. A really good movie. It's still showing, but it's all about this concept of, of the, the church and the state and, and their relation before God and and I uh, would encourage you to, to see that essential church, to think about the state wanting the church to bow to it, or, or think about science. Science makes evolution a, a, a God sort of thing. Every, it explains everything from and through and to evolution, bringing everything to be. And just, just believe in it, even if it doesn't make sense. Or society, we, we think of like, like she talked about, society being one of those gods, social justice is the way our world defines it, literally is calling people to bow and to say certain phrases and to, and to praise the LGBT revolution religiously. There's all kinds of ways that our world can have other gods, but we need to, we need to look in our own heart and recognize there's a place for some of these things. There's a place for sex within marriage, for the state, for society and science and all of that, but they can never take the place of God. A good can become a God. So here's a question to think about. What do you think you can't live without? What do you think you can't live without? Here's what Martin Luther in the 1500s, wrote on his larger catechism, what is the first commandment? What is a God? Or putting a God, having a God, what does that mean? He says, a God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in, upon which you set your heart and cleave to or rest in. Let me read that again. It's, we expect all good from it. We, we find our, our refuge, our comfort in this above all. We cleave to it. We rest fully on this. And he says this, to have a God is to have something in which the heart entirely trusts. So we need to ask ourselves, what is it in, in my life that has that temptation or that tendency to move into the center where only God should be. This isn't just a one-time thing. We need to be continually thinking about how we can keep back to the Lord in the center. Here's how a more modern group, Beautiful Eulogy, says it. We seek pleasure in anything. We overestimate everything, endlessly trusting in empty entities. A good God gives 
good gifts, but we twist the list and we make gods out of those gifts. I suppose what exposes the worship in most of us is a close look at most of our thoughts, fears, and emotions. I prefer the immediate and I can exchange the true God for what seems expedient. Help us not see greater value in the gifts you give and not become distracted from their intended desires. May we regard the world and all that is in it as nothing compared to the satisfaction of knowing our Messiah. That's Christ's sufficiency and supremacy in our life when he's number one. God help us to seek him first. If he's going to have first place in everything, let's give him the first place of our day. Let's, let's make the first day of, of the week, the Lord's Day, that we're here today. Let's make that a priority to, to be here as a way to put him first. And you have an opportunity to put him first tomorrow. If you're not already doing this, read your Bible. And that's a great way to start the day. And you can do it at other times as well. But I would encourage you to put away technology as much as possible in those times. Technology can become something that we put before God. And let me encourage you then and during the day as things come up, turn to him first in prayer. This is convicting to me. Sometimes I just go into the mode of, of what I'm doing. But am I turning first even, even in short moments to say, God, help me in this. So as we fail to obey the first commandment, ask him to forgive in his unfailing love and ask him to show you where something or someone has misplaced him in ruling you. If you ask him that, he's going to show you that because he loves you and cares for you. And then when you see that, repent and ask him for help to let nothing, that or anything else, be a God in your life before him as your number one. And if your heart is distracted like mine or divided, pray what we began this service with, Psalm 8611, unite my heart to fear your name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray that together. Our great God, we thank you that you are gracious. And Lord, I just have to confess, even as I stand here and even as I've been this week, preparing a message to speak on this, Lord, to, to realize, Lord, how much I need you. Your law has shown in a greater way than I knew before and than we knew before, Lord, our need for Christ. So help us, Christ. Change us. Make us more like Christ, more like his image and likeness as we look in your word. And help us not to go away from here as hearers only who immediately forget what kind of person we've seen we are. Lord, help us to be doers of your word for the glory of Christ. And I pray, Lord, for hurting people here. I pray for any who are in need of Christ in any way. And for those who are yet apart from Christ and and need maybe salvation here and have seen that for the first time, Lord, I pray that you would move them whether to come up front and pray with, talk with someone afterwards, or even in their, in their heart right now and this very day to commit to you and to ask the help of your people to follow you. Lord, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.